Over the past few years, I've gotten to know a criminal defense attorney. And to be clear, um, we don't have a professional relationship. Um, our paths have crossed through uh, youth sports and, uh, and other neighborhood functions. Anyway, this, this man has had a successful career uh, in offering counsel to those who find themselves on the wrong side of the law. Uh, as a former police officer, this attorney has a great respect for the law. Still, he has a, a compassion, a heart of compassion for those who find themselves in need of mercy for breaking, or at least allegedly breaking the law. Uh, some of this attorney's friends have, uh, have given him a hard time for how they have heard his firm advertised. Uh, he boasts such success that in his work it's rumored that, uh, quote, his clients return to him again and again, end quote. And, uh, you know, while this kind of statement commends the, the favorable resolutions that my friend has been able to negotiate for his clients, uh, it's, it's said that he has repeat clients at all. Uh, something's amiss, right, when those who have been pardoned do not change. Uh, my, my friend does important work. It's important uh, that the accused receive excellent legal counsel. Um, but we can all hope that after receiving mercy from a judge, that a person amends his ways. What about you? Uh, is there a pattern of mercy in your life? Has God been merciful to you? And if you have received the gift of, of mercy, have you, have you found yourself changed by mercy? This is one of the things that we're going to consider in our passage together this morning. If you haven't done so already, let me invite you to open your Bibles, to turn in your Bibles to 2 Kings chapter 13, or 2 Kings 13, as some might call it. If you're using one of the Bibles provided, you can find the passage on page 319. If you thought flashbacks and flash-forwards were just something that modern movie makers uh, did, well, then I want to inter introduce you to someone who did it long ago, uh, the author of Kings. In 2 Kings 13, it's, it's something of a, a difficult chapter to follow because uh, the author fast-forwards and rewinds as he covers the reigns of two kings, Jehoahaz and Jehoash. And the similarity of um, the names Jehoahaz and Jehoash in this chapter uh, make it somewhat difficult to, to keep them straight at times. But there's another problem. Their names sound like the names of other kings we've already met in the book of Kings. Uh, what we need to keep in view now is that the author has returned his focus to the northern kingdom of Israel. Uh, the, the books of First and Second Kings, originally, you'll recall, were just one book. And they chronicle the history of God's people from the reign of Solomon in a, in a united kingdom uh, to uh, their division, through their division, into two kingdoms in the north and the south. The northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. And all of this... Uh, we see happens according to God's word. They, they move from a united kingdom under Solomon to a divided kingdom and eventually into exile. But all of this occurs in accordance with God's word. He, he keeps his promises. And we're going to see that come alive again in the text that we're looking at together this morning. But right now, we're turning our attention back to the northern kingdom, to its capital city, Samaria, where Jehoahaz and Jehoash reigned. And while it's important to keep track of when the author kind of flashes forward and when he flashes back, we need to understand that he's doing so to, to make really a theological point. He's chronicling history, but he is doing so to teach us about God, about his ways, and about how we should respond 
to them. And here are at least three lessons that the author of Kings wants us to learn from this chapter, from 2 Kings 13. First, God's compassion, God's compassion should change us. Second, God's promises should propel us. And third, God's faithfulness should fortify us. Those are the three lessons that's going to form the outline of the rest of the sermon this morning. Let's begin with the first lesson of the text, that God's compassion should change us. And here we're looking at 2 Kings chapter 13, verses 1 to 9. And as we, as we read these verses, see if you can spot where the author indicates that God's compassion should change us. Let's begin there in verse 1. In the 23rd year of Joash, the son of Ahaziah, king of Judah, Jehoahaz, the son of Jehu, began to reign over Israel in Samaria. And he reigned for 17 years. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and followed the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel to sin. He did not depart from them. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he gave them continually into the hand of Haziel, king of Syria, and into the hand of Ben-Hadad, the son of Haziel. Then Jehoahaz sought the favor of the Lord, and the Lord listened to him, for he saw the oppression of Israel, how the king of Syria oppressed them. Therefore, the Lord gave Israel a savior, so that they escaped from the hand of the Syrians. And the people of Israel lived in their homes as formerly. Nevertheless, they did not depart from the sins of the house of Jeroboam, which he made Israel to sin, but walked in them. And the Asherah also remained in Samaria. For there was not left to Jehoahaz an army of more than 50 horsemen and 10 chariots and 10,000 footmen, For the king of Syria had destroyed them and made them like the dust at threshing. Now the rest of the acts of Jehoahaz and all that he did and his might, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Israel? So Jehoahaz slept with his fathers and they buried him in Samaria. And Joash, his son, reigned in his place. These verses, you may have noticed, they have a set of bookends. There's some material in the beginning and material at the end that have a common connection. They have a, a common regnal formula, a royal formula there in, verses, in verse 1. And they have a common concluding regnal formula, royal formula there in verses 8 and 9. And the goal of, of, of this formula is to introduce a king in his reign to us and to conclude a king in his reign to us. These, these regnal formulas, they often include the, the year of the king's reign, the, the king who is reigning in the opposite kingdom, and how long he reigned. We have those elements here. But we also have this concluding kind of bookend you see there in verses 8 and 9. And I think this concluding formula is really interesting. It's as if the author is saying, look, you, you can go up and look, look up this guy's history, the events and activities, the other things that took place in his reign in, in Chronicles. Go, go take a look at that. I know about them, but I'm not focused on them. I'm focused on kind of a smaller set of events. I'm evaluating him through this lens, this particular lens. I know about them, but I'm not dealing with them right now. And the evaluation and smaller set of events is really found there in verses 2 to 7. Did you notice the author's evaluation there in verse 2? 
The author basically suggests that Jehoaz was, he was just like all the other kings who went before him. He did, you see there, you see it, he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and followed the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel to sin and did not depart from them. And by this, the, the author of Kings, he means that Jehoahaz uh, kept the worship centers in Dan and Bethel. Uh, you'll recall that this was in direct contradiction to the law of God, which ordained that there was actually only one center of worship among the people of God. In Deuteronomy chapter 12, Yahweh God revealed that He would direct His people to His worship center. And at this point in the history of the people of God, He was directing them to offer their worship at the temple sanctuary in Jerusalem. But in, in defiance of God's law, Jeroboam and, and all the other kings in the northern kingdom, they urged the people of Israel to go to these worship centers in Dan and Bethel instead of Jerusalem. And I think we see in this that Jehoahaz, he is both brash and he's boring. <laughs> it's brash to reject your creator. Right? It takes a good bit of hubris to say to God, you know, we're, we're worshiping you. I, okay, not, not in the way that you want, not in the way that you directed, but hey, you know, we're still worshiping you, God. It takes a good bit of hubris. It's brash. Uh, it, it also makes clear that it's this kind of attitude that sets the creature above the creator. It makes clear that we, we don't really believe that the author of creation has authority, real authority, in our lives. Jehoahaz is brash, and so is everyone who sins against the living God. Jehoahaz is also boring. Like rebellion is redundant and repetitive. Depravity is dull. It's the same thing over and over again. Sin is not exciting or creative. Um, people have been sinning against God, deciding to live their own way from nearly the very beginning of the Bible, from Genesis 3. If you think by your sin that you're doing something exciting or thrilling and new, well, the truth is, is that you're just doing something that is boring, monotonous, and old. Jehoahaz and Israel are brash and boring and their sin, it arouses the anger of God. You see that in the text. And this too is unsurprising. God promised that He would judge iniquity, transgression, and sin. He promised, even in the book of Kings, that He would do it by the hand of Haziah, who we see reappears again here. We have what we have in verse 3. The Lord is using the king of Syria to discipline His own people. This is a kindness of God. Sometimes God disciplines His own people to drive them to Himself and to drive them away from their sin. Well, Haziel's oppression of Israel certainly drove Jehoahaz to seek the favor of the Lord. Uh, amazingly, here we see that the Lord listens to this boring and brash king. I wonder, are you, are you ever amazed by the fact that God will listen to the cries of sinners? Are you amazed by that? That God will listen to the cries of of sinners. And this language of, of listening has a long history in the Bible. It, it stretches all the way back to the first chapters of Exodus, where God heard the cries, He listened to the cries of His people under the oppression of Pharaoh. God listened, He remembered His covenant promises, and He rescued and He saved His people. Just as God heard and saw the oppression of Pharaoh upon his people, so now he hears and sees the oppression of Syria upon his people. He not only hears and sees, but he also acts. Just as he gave Israel Moses in Exodus, 
So he gives Israel a savior here. And I think actually the word for savior is a kind of a play on Moses' name. Uh, we're not told precisely who that is. We're just left to guess. And what we do know is that there is this savior, this deliverer, is from the hand of God. He's the only one that ultimately his people are to look to for deliverance. What is more, God's action to raise up a savior reveals his compassion upon his suffering and sinful people. As we consider God's compassion, remember that Jehoah has and Israel have been brashly continuing on in the monotonous pattern of rebellion and yet they cry out to God. God would have been just to let them go on in their suffering. After all, they they weren't even expressing sorrow over their sin, which was what led to their suffering. All they were saying was that, God, we're we're suffering right now. Can, Can you help us? Would you take pity upon us? They're not admitting they're wrong. And amazingly, God's love is stoked. His compassion for His people in their complaint is aroused, and He saves them from the hand of the Syrians. They they get to go back to their homes, and they live in peace. God's care and compassion changed their circumstances, but it didn't change them. It didn't lead to a change in their hearts. That's the force of the nevertheless that you see there in verse 6. You see verse 6 again? Nevertheless, they did not depart from the sins of the house of Jeroboam, which he made Israel to sin, but walked in them. And the Asherah also remained in Samaria. They went back to the same old thrash and boring routine of rebellion. They went back to calf worship in Dan and Bethel. They they deliberately walked in these sins. And we learn in the conclusion of verse 6 that they kept the Asherah idols too. Jehoahaz and Israel, they cried out to God when they needed His help. But they didn't really believe that they needed Him. What's the point of verse 7 there? Right, bearing in mind that verses 5 and 6 are something that kind of an inserted comment, a parenthetical statement. In verse 7, we're told that the army of Israel was decimated. There's an emphasis on chariots and horsemen that are actually going to kind of boomerang back around later in the chapter. But the bottom line of verse 7 is that Israel has a depleted and decimated army. They really need the Lord. God rescued them when they were down to nothing. He defended them when they could not defend themselves. And yet once saved, once delivered, they kept on sinning. They were helped, but they weren't humbled. Thomas Watson once said that the mercies of God make the sinner proud but the saint humble. God's compassion had changed their circumstance. Syria is no longer an immediate or existential threat, but it hadn't led to a change in their hearts. What would be a lesson for those who first read this book? What do we need to learn? Bear in mind that those first reading the the book of Kings were a group of exiles in Judah. They were exiles because of their sin. They were thrust out of the promised land of Canaan because they were not faithful to God. They were not faithful to keep His word. They didn't trust Him. They were waiting for God to make good on His promises, to rescue them from exile and restore them to their homeland. I think the message is clear, isn't it? When Yahweh God, when God stoops down to show compassion on you, 
when He sends you a Savior and raises you up out of exile, when He returns you to your homes and you live in peace, are you going to return to the same old sins when you return to your land and your homes? When we think about these verses in light of that, the message of 2 Kings 13, 1-9 is clear to us, isn't it? The, the Apostle Peter, he calls us as New Testament believers, he calls us strangers and exiles. Has the compassion and salvation of Jesus Christ changed us? God's compassion toward us in Jesus Christ should change us, right? Romans 6, what then shall we say? Are we continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? We know that our old self was crucified with Him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. So you must also consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body. Present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. That's the truth that we find in Romans chapter 6, verses 1 to 12. The compassion of God in Jesus Christ should change us. Mercy, as one believer said, should melt us. Why did you cry out to God? Was it, was it just to put everything back into place, kind of neat and tidy? Why did you cry out to God? Was it to relieve just a bit of suffering? that you were enduring? Was it just to return you to kind of formerly peaceful state? After having received God's mercy and compassion, have you returned to a kind of indifference toward God, like the people of Israel? Is your main aim for God to serve you, or now is your main aim to serve God? God's pity upon us in our helpless state of sin? God's pardon upon us because of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus ought to have a powerful and profound effect upon our lives. God's compassion should change us. Has it changed you? If, if you're a professing believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, has your life been changed? As it's, as it's often been said, God's compassion does not make us sinless but it should lead us to sin less. Is that true of your life? Are you giving yourself day by day to the Lord Jesus? Right? There's a reason He's called the Lord Jesus. He's our Master. Are we yielding everything, everything to Him and everything that God says to us in His Word? And do not fail to see in this passage just how eager and ready God is to hear the prayers of His people. I, I pray that that moves you. He is ready. He is eager. He is willing to hear the prayers of those who are harassed and hounded by their sin. He's ready to act for His children. He is, he is just looking for a reason to relieve us. To pour out His compassion upon us. And to be gracious toward us. Do not hesitate to run to Him and to cry out to Him. Run to Him in repentance and faith. His ear is turned toward us. He loves His people.
His compassion should change us. And God's promises should propel us. That's the lesson that we find in, in 2 Kings 13 verses 10 to 19. It's also our second point that God's promises should repel us. We, we begin by just reading verses 10 to 13 for now. So take a look at verses 10 to 13 of, of chapter 13. In the 37th year of Joash, king of Judah, Jehoash, the son of Jehoahaz, began to reign over Israel and Samaria. And he reigned 16 years. He also did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel to sin, but he walked in them. Now the rest of the acts of Joash and all that he did and the might with which he fought against Amaziah, king of Judah, are they not written in the book of Chronicles of the kings of Israel? So Joash slept with his fathers, and Jeroboam sat on his throne, and Joash was buried in Samaria with the kings of Israel. We, uh, we get the entirety of uh, Jehoash's reign, all uh, 16 years, summarized just here in a few short verses, don't we? Uh, the, the author, he's going to circle back in a minute and kind of unfold an important episode that took place in those 16 years. He's kind of saving the, the best for last, as it were. Let me just tell you about this. I want to get to the best in a little bit, but I need to tell you this summary of his reign. That's kind of what's going on. But right now, he's kind of marching through his, his regnal formulas. As we learned earlier, rebellion's redundant. It's repetitive. We've seen all this language before. We've seen the language of he did not depart from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. We saw that language with his father. It was just like his father, Jehoahaz. He too kept the golden calf worship centers in Bethel and Dan. But then in verses 12 13, he is quickly dismissed, as quickly as he's introduced. And curiously, uh, the author does use the, the shortened version of his name in verses 12 and 13. You can think of this. Uh, a, a bit like shortening uh, Joshua to Josh. He shortens uh, Jehoash to Joash. You see that there in the text. Uh, there's a challenge with this. It makes it easy for us to confuse him with the Joash who reigned in the southern kingdom of Judah around a similar time. And uh, that Joash was mentioned there in verse 10. Uh, some have chalked this up to uh, perhaps a scribal error or even a matter of convenience uh, but perhaps we should be a little more respectful of our author. Uh, in fact, we might suspect that the author is actually up to something. Perhaps he has deliberately uh, shortened the version of the king's name. This is probably more than a matter of mere convenience of kind of wanting to write a few less letters. It's probably part of the author's design to remind us of the southern king by the same name, because in chapter 12, he has informed us that Joash of Judah, that southern king, and he had a bright beginning, but he had an embarrassing end. He was a dud of a king. He was a disappointing king. And what we're about to find out is that this Joash of the north, you know what? He's actually a lot like him. He's disappointing too. He's a dud. God holds out a promise of victory to him and he bungles it. Uh, I believe that this is what they call snatching defeat from the jaws of victory. Uh, God holds out a promise, and His promise should propel Joash on in faith, but He gives a, a half-hearted response to God's good promises. God's promises should powerfully propel us in faith, propel Him. 
But Joash stops short. We must remember that in, in the larger narrative of the book of Kings, one of the author's purposes is to remind us that each of these kings, each of the kings we meet in this book, well, he's not the king that we're really looking for. He's not God's messianic king. The book of Kings, it, it, it cultivates an anticipation within us for God's final messianic king who will receive, believe, and obey God's word where all of the previous kings have failed. A king, we're looking for a king who will not be a dud, a king who will not disappoint. And in the storyline of Scripture, we know that Jesus is that true and final king, that messianic king. But for now, see if you can spot how Joash, the king of Israel, the northern king, fails to lay hold of the promises of God. Take a look there at verses 14 to 19. See if you see how he comes up short. Verse 14. Now when Elisha had fallen sick, with the illness of which he was to die, Joash, king of Israel, went down to him and wept before him, crying, My father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. And Elisha said to him, Take a bow and arrows. So he took a bow and arrows. Then he said to the king of Israel, Draw the bow. And he drew it. And Elisha laid his hands on the king's hands. And he said, Open the window eastward. And he opened it. And Elisha said, Shoot. And he shot. And he said, The Lord's arrow of victory, the victory over Syria. For you shall fight the Syrians in Aphek until you've made an end of them. And he said, Take the arrows. And he took them. And he said to the king of Israel, Strike the ground with them. And he struck three times and stopped. Then the man of God was angry with him and said, You should have struck five or six times. Then you would have struck down Syria until you had made an end of it. But now you will strike down Syria only three times. Elisha, a prophet who has had a great deal of prominence in this book, Elisha is dying. The man of God is dying. The prophet of God is dying. The end of an era is approaching. It cannot be avoided. And Joash visits Elisha. He weeps and he cries, My father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. Now, interestingly enough, we saw chariots and horsemen turn up earlier in the chapter, but interestingly enough, this is what Elisha himself cried when his predecessor, Elijah, was removed from the earth. Remember uh, earlier in the chapter, we, we saw that the chariots and horsemen, they were utterly decimated. They were weaned down to very few. And part of Joash's cry then is, is not so much a lamenting the loss of Elisha, but a lamenting of the weakened state of his nation and military. He's wondering, how is Israel going to survive without Elisha? Because throughout his ministry, Elisha has played a, a crucial role in protecting Israel, Israel's king and giving success to Israel's military. Elisha would very often give away the, the points of attack that others were going to, to, to lodge on Israel. And here Elisha's last sermon to Joash involves signs and arrows. The, the, the point of what Elisha is teaching Joash and all of this was that his hope should have never been in Elisha, but in the God who Elisha served. It's now time for Joash to lean on God and not on Elisha. Elisha is actually testing the faith of Joash. He's making him sit for an exam. 
And he's seeking to, to draw out the knowledge of God, the knowledge that he has of God. Elisha wants to know what kind of faith Joash has. What we find in verses 15 to 17 is, is an enacted parable. It's a kind of physical, illustrative teaching of what God is promising to do. Elisha calls Joash to shoot an arrow in the direction of the east. Why east? Because that's where Syria is. Syria's to the east. And do you notice that small but important detail there in verse 16? Do you notice that Elisha, the dying man, he actually gathers his strength to lay hands on the king's hands. Elisha is physically teaching the king that Yahweh will be with him. And he confirms it with his comment there in verse 17 saying, The Lord's arrow of victory, the arrow of victory over Syria, for you shall fight the Syrians in Aphek until you have made an end of them. In other words, Elisha, he's saying to Joash, My dear king, go to Aphek. The Lord has promised victory over the Syrians. The arrow striking the ground is God's symbolic promise that you will win. But then... Elisha calls Joash to respond to this promise with a display of his own commitment to defeat Syria. Right? Here is the test. Take up the arrows and show me that you believe this promise of God. Right? That's what's going on in verse 18. It's a test to draw out what kind of faith is in Joash. The promises of God are, are personal. They, propel us, should, they should propel us to act in faith. And when Elisha tells Joash to strike the ground with the arrows, seems like he's telling Joash, look, go ahead Empty your quiver. Shoot all of the arrows out the window and onto the ground as a kind of display that you believe this promise of God. That you will make an end of Syria. Bring an end to your arrows. Bring an end to Syria. God's promises are an inducement, an invitation to faith, to trust Him. They're held out to us so that we might trust in the God who makes them. But what does Joash do? You see it there at the end of verse 18. He struck three times and stopped. And Elisha, he's angry. He's righteously angry. He stopped. He didn't say take three arrows. He said take the arrows, right? He didn't tell him to stop. He told him to shoot. And Joash should have kept shooting and striking until he couldn't shoot and strike anymore. Since he only struck the ground three times, he would only strike down Syria three times. And if you skip down to the end of the chapter, go ahead and take a look at verse 25 there at the end of the chapter. You'll see that Elisha's prophetic promises prove true. Here's the last sentence of the chapter in verse 25. Three times Joash defeated him and recovered the cities of Israel. You know, it's actually probably, perhaps likely that Joash didn't really want to completely wipe out Syria. You see, at this very time in history, there was a growing empire just, just beyond Syria. That growing empire was uh, Syria. And Joash likely didn't want to totally eliminate Syria because it's useful to have Syria as something of kind of a, a buffer state between Israel and uh, Syria. Joash wasn't trusting in God. He was trusting in chariots and horsemen. He asked God for what he wanted, and he got what he asked for. God promised victory over Syria. That promise, it should have propelled Joash to trust God, not in part, but in the whole. God's promises to His people ought to propel us on Him, to venture on Him wholly. And let no other trust intrude. Psalm 27, 
verse 7, Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. We do not trust in wealth, in worldly wisdom, in physical strength and vitality, work, or anything else. We trust in the name of the Lord our God. How you respond to the promises of God has a real, meaningful, and significant impact in your life. Will you allow God's promises to propel you on in faith and faithfulness? Will you trust in Him and in no one else? Will you hear in God's promises His invitation? And this is important from another direction. How big are God's promises to you? Do they propel you to act in faith? God's promises, uh, they should propel us. God's compassion, it should change us. And God's faithfulness should fortify us. That's the, the third and final point that we want to look at together this morning. God's faithfulness should fortify us. This is the lesson we see in verses uh, 20 to 25. But let's just begin by reading verses 20 and 21. Chapter 13, there, verse 20. So Elisha died, and they buried him. Now bands of Moabites used to invade the land in the spring of the year. And as a man was being buried, behold, a marauding band was seen, and the man was thrown into the grave of Elisha. And as soon as the man touched the bones of Elisha, he revived and stood on his feet. What are we to make of this? A dead guy gets thrown into Elisha's grave and he comes back to life. What a strange scene. Is this just, is it just kind of magical hocus pocus? It's not magic. It's a miracle. And please do not give way to the temptation of your heart um, to think, right, um, you know, this is a long time ago. We, we understand when people are dead uh, we, we better understand that these days. We can confirm these things these days. Um, I, I think that that kind of conclusion tends toward a kind of chronological snobbery. Um, the reality is the people in ancient Israel were far more acquainted with death than we are. Uh, people died in their homes. They were cared for by their loved ones back then when they were on their deathbeds. Today, people tend to die in in hospitals or in other kind of sterilized environments often. We, we keep death at a distance, at least as, as much as we can in our society today. We don't know death nearly as well, honestly, as the ancient world did. This man was dead. And what is more, this is God's world. He is the author of creation, and he has the authority and power to do with whatever accords with his most holy will in creation. If he wants to cause the sun to stand still, he can. He can make it stand still. Uh, if he wants to calm the winds and the waves of the word, he can do it and has done it. This is God's world and he can do what he wants. He is the author and he has authority over his creation. This is a miracle. It's not magic. And, and there's actually a point to it. Both here in Kings and in the, the larger storyline of Scripture. It's important for us to remember the purpose of, uh, of miracles in the Bible. Miracles are not given in the Bible just to kind of impress us. Just to say, whoa, look at that. That's, that's really interesting. That's fun. That's not the purpose of miracles in the Bible. 
Elijah and Elisha and Jesus and the apostles did not perform miracles just to put on a fantastic show. Miracles in the Bible are given to confirm the prophetic, the divine word. Why did God enable Elijah and Elisha to perform miracles? To confirm that the words that they speak as God's prophet on God's behalf are divinely authorized and certain to come to pass. In other words, miracles reveal God's faithfulness to his promises. This miracle takes place after Elisha's death to confirm that what he said was true and was going to come to pass. In the most immediate context, it's to confirm God's promise that a threefold victory over Syria would come to pass. And as we've already seen, the last sentence of the chapter, verse 25, it confirms this. God keeps his promises. So, right, just think about the order of events. God promises a victory. God provides a miracle to confirm his promise. And God faithfully procures that victory. But there's another layer. This miracle has a a longer horizon. It pictures something profound in the ministry and death of Jesus Christ. Remember Jesus said that all the law and the prophets point to him. Read that in Luke 24, 44. And you'll recall that the prophet Elijah came before the prophet Elisha. You'll recall that Elisha had a double portion of Elijah's spirit. In other words, uh, Elisha performed greater miracles, both in number and in magnitude, than Elijah. Now, do you remember who was identified as the new Elijah in the New Testament? It was John the Baptist, right? He came preparing the way for the Lord. That's what he did. He proceeded. He prepared the way of the Lord Jesus. And the Lord Jesus, uh, he certainly performed greater works, both in number and in magnitude, than John the Baptist. In fact, Do you remember what happened at Jesus' death? We we read about it earlier in the service. Jesus was hanging in agony on the cross. He he calls out to God the Father, and the bystanders thought that he's calling out to Elijah. But listen to Matthew 27, verses 49 to 54 again. So Jesus, he's, he's called out to God the Father. Bystanders think he's calling out to Elijah, and we read this. But the other said, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. In other words, he died. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook, and the rocks were split, and the tombs also were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep, means they were dead, many bodies, many bodies, not just one, but many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And they came out of their tombs after his resurrection and they went into holy city and appeared to many. And when the centurion and those who were with him keeping watch over Jesus saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, truly this was the son of God. Jesus is the greater Elisha. Elisha's death brought one man back to life, but Jesus' death brought many back to life. This miracle occurred to confirm the veracity, the truth of what Jesus spoke during the course of his ministry. And what did Jesus proclaim? He proclaimed that he was the Son of God. He proclaimed that he was the long-awaited Son of David, the King that God's people had been waiting for, the King that the, the Book of Kings was anticipating. Jesus proclaimed that he was the Savior of the world who had come to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus came to bring the dead back to life, both physically and spiritually. 
And friend, if you're here this morning, you're not a believer and follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, then the message that 2 Kings chapter 13, and indeed the whole Bible, proclaims to you today, is that God has spoken. He has spoken in His Son. He has sent a prophet like Elisha, who speaks God's powerful word. Jesus is God's powerful word. God has sent a priest who dies for His people, who offers the sacrifice needed for their sins. He offers the sacrifice of Himself for sinners like you and me, bearing punishment due to our sins. God has sent a king greater than David, a king who was wholly and completely devoted to God the Father, and a king who now rules in love. In other words, God has been faithful to fulfill all of His promises and has proved it in Jesus' death and resurrection. And three days after Jesus' death, God the Father, He raised Him from the dead. And so gave us a picture on the last day when all creation would be renewed. You see, death is, death is not always the end. Do you understand that? Death is not always the end. It wasn't the end for that man who was thrown in to Elisha's grave. He got up again. And death will not be our end. One day, God's people will get up from their graves. And like those saints who came out of their graves after Jesus' death and resurrection. But when Jesus returns to to give His people, He returns to raise them from their graves, He will give them new and glorified bodies. Friend, why don't you admit that your rebellion against God has been, well, it's been redundant. It's been repetitive. Why don't you admit that Jesus is the Savior that you need? He can save you from the punishment due to your sins because He's already taken that punishment in His death on the cross. Come to Jesus in repentance and faith. Believe Him. Trust Him for your salvation. Trust that He lived the life that you've not lived, the life of perfect obedience to God the Father. Trust that He died the death that you deserve to die, bearing God's punishment against your sin. Trust that He was raised from the grave in victory over death so that you might be forgiven and accepted by God. And so that one day, though you may die, yet shall you live. Trust Him, not in a half-hearted way like Joash, but trust Him as fully and completely as you can. Bank your eternity on Him. This miracle in 2 Kings 13 is given to confirm that God is faithful to fulfill His promises, to give Israel a threefold victory over Syria. But there's one more glimpse of God's faithfulness in the text. It's in verses 22 to 25. And here the the author is chronicling God's faithfulness to keep His promises to deliver Israel from Syria. But take special note of verse 23. As Haziel, the king of Syria, is oppressing Israel, we're told in this, uh, this in verse 23. But the Lord was gracious to them and had compassion on them. And He turned toward them because of His covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and would not destroy them, nor has He cast them from His presence until now. The author, he goes on to chronicle the Lord's faithfulness to His people in the subsequent verses, but doesn't verse 23 tell us something wonderful about our God? Doesn't it tell us that He's faithful to His covenant? That He doesn't change? He's faithful to His covenant promises. That He's faithful to His covenant people. 
Doesn't it tell us that our God is full of compassion toward those who are full of sin? Do you see what the author of Kings is telling us? He's telling us that our God has been faithful to His promises made so long ago. And that He continues to be faithful. And this should fortify us. It should strengthen us. It should steal us and embolden us to live faithfully for Him. Dear Christian, there is so much before you in the world that may generate fear in your heart. Right, as you walk out those doors, as you walk out those doors and walk into the world, brother or sister, remember, remember that our unchanging, promise-making, promise-keeping, ever-present, compassionate, merciful, gracious, good, and faithful God will never leave you or forsake you. He is always with you, even to the very end of the age. And let His great compassion, let His mercy and love change you. Let His astounding and powerful promises propel you to trust Him for yet more. And let His faithful character fortify you for the days ahead. Let's pray together.